There are seasons of our lives where nothing comes easy. There are no slow, sweet mornings or dawdling afternoons or rambunctious evenings where you don't know how things might end. No, things are pretty buttoned up. This has to be done, that has to be finished. Life is small and tight. People have to be cared for, work has to be accomplished, or maybe you can't do much of anything anyway because you're recovering from something, not able to get much traction, or waiting for a yes in a season of no. And when life is too small, so often, our pleasures dry up. We have been in a long stretch of pandemic deferment, putting off experiences because they weren't safe or were impossible, unable to choose much of anything. But sometimes when we can't go wide, we learn to go deep. We dig out our small delights, the pleasures we can reach for here today, where we are in our small lives, which are in desperate need of beautiful things to sustain them. So today, let's linger here for a moment, take out a napkin, lay out a nice tablecloth, and sit down for a moment with our absolutely delightful guest who is excellent at making his taste buds widen his world, the shockingly here with me today, can you even believe it, Stanley Tucci? (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Stanley Tucci needs no introduction, and yet I will forge on describing him as if in a fugue state. He is an actor, producer, and writer. We loved him in The Devil Wears Prada and Julie and Julia and The Hunger Games, just to name a few. He also hosted the mouthwatering food and travel documentary series on CNN called Stanley Tucci, Searching for Italy, which you must watch. And his latest work is a gorgeous memoir. I adored it, and I cried and laughed on a plane. It's called taste my life through food stanley i cannot believe you are here you bring me joy thank you so much oh my god kate thank you that's the best introduction ever thank you i'm so happy to be here thank you i will tape it as a voice memo you can play it anytime (laughs) now what you what you wrote prior to my introduction i mean that very beginning bit there was just gorgeous thank you gorgeous well When I started reading your book, I immediately fell in love with your family, this modest family who prided themselves in simple joys, like your grandparents' wine cellar with wine that may or or may not have been the best wine in the world. Yeah, yeah, it was it was it was tough. But but we we loved it. I mean, we had the wine was tough. I I I wish I could have it again. Yeah, because. Well, they would mean my grandfather was alive, so. Yeah. They were resourceful. If you don't mind describing the kind of absolutely delightful resourcefulness they had about making something into more to put on the table. Necessity is the mother of of invention. And I think the Southern Italians in particular, so many Italians, but I think particularly Southern Italians, because they were so incredibly poor, were able to make a lot out of practically nothing. When you see the dishes, of so many dishes of Southern Italy, they are so, so very simple. Mm. Um, and yet they sustain you. Um, even the dishes of Tuscany, which we think of now as a very wealthy place, and it is more wealthy than a lot of regions in Italy, but it wasn't always. 
there were pockets of wealth in the urban centers, but the people in the countryside were incredibly poor. Therefore, their diet was beans and kale, you know, or so, you know, yeah. I mean, and that was it. I mean, I'm sure they had terrible gas, <laughs> but it kept them, but it, you know, it sustained you. And even the bread was, was made without, without salt yeah. because salt was very, was very dear. So it's that kind of stuff. And just to see my grandparents, you know, nothing ever went, went to waste and they grew their own, so many of their own vegetables and they had uh, ch chickens from time to time. They had rabbits. When my mother was young, they had more animals than when I was young. But, but all of that stuff went onto the table, you know, from nose to tail, from root to flower. It all ended up in your mouth. <laughs> That's right. From tree to squirrel, from squirrel to pot. Yeah, from tree. Yes, yes. My grandmother eating, ripping apart a squirrel one time. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. <laughs> uh, you would be wonderful with Mennonites. Um, I grew up around <laughs> Mennonites, and especially during the pandemic, their absolutely uh, inexhaustible resourcefulness came out. And my brother-in-law has been making mead, which is truly horrific uh so many yeah he's so pleased and there are so many jugs and there's like a mead cellar which the dog fell into the other day but mm. it's just Ooh. it's a lot happening mead is from honey right isn't it based honey based isn't it, it is honey based and it belongs in the medieval era from whence it came and it should be retired yeah. there yeah i've heard that i've heard that yeah. <laughs> whenever i see the big jugs of anything coming out <laughs> to be to Ooh. be tasted i think thank you Thank you yeah. for your generosity. Um, <laughs> your grandparents' families were, as you said, immigrants. How did you see them recreate their culture in the ways that they cooked and prepared food? They were, mm -hmm. they were kind of always at home, even if they weren't still at home. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, one of the things, having done just a little bit of work with UNHCR, the United Nations, um, refugee organization they one of the things we talked about is that what the one thing that people can bring with them when they're a refugee are their recipes because those recipes are they're in your head and they're in your mouth yeah and to be able to start there is as a way you begin to recreate the home that you've had to flee either for war or pestilence or in my grandparents' case, it was there, were, there was lack of opportunity, yeah, and and real poverty. It is kind of amazing when you can walk into a house and just by the smells that you know where they're from. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. It was so funny. I was the other day. I was walked into my room. I, I walked into one room in my house here, and it smelled exactly like my uncle Frank's house. And I don't know why, I don't know what it was. Yeah. I don't know what made it smell that way. And I couldn't figure it out. Yeah. I couldn't figure it out, <laughs> but there are those smells like my grandparents, my mother's father's house, parents' house smelled very specific. It's very specific, that smell. And a lot of it just comes from what are you cooking? I mean, and there's nothing worse than walking into someone's house and they just, they don't cook. And they're, they're, you know, you don't really yeah, smell it smells any. like the diffuser. Where it's like lemongrass. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, yeah. I always, when I walk into my mom's kitchen, I can always, she has this um, lovely little garden and we live really close to a river in southern Manitoba where the 
soil is really, really rich and everything grows unbelievably quickly because there's really only a two and a half month summer. And so it goes from snow to the flooding season and then the introduction of the hanging worms and the mosquitoes. But somewhere in there, there's an instant garden and the taste of carrots. I mean, pulled out of the ground carrots is is one of the strongest things I associate with my mom. Oh, yeah. I remember having carrots right out of the garden. My grandparents grew them, and they were incredible. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'd be hard-pressed to find a carrot that tasted like that today. Yeah. Um, even the ones, you know, that you get at the farmer's market, and they're organic, and they're blah, blah, blah. But I don't know. There was just something about... Yeah. I, I don't know what that is. <laughs> I guess one of my favorite things about like being from somewhere and I associate Manitoba with these really fast growing summer gardens and lots of winter food, like, Mm. um, you know, even later on, it would be like bison burgers and dried Mm. elk and, um, Mm -hmm. but these small joys and the taste of it, the familiarity of it. And I love that you, have such a intense, I mean, you've been to all these beautiful restaurants, but you, you put in these huge plugs for um, how unfussy our loves can be. I did really enjoy that doubling down on learning to be unfussy came to you at quite a cost when uh, you were with, um, you're trying to order something unbelievably, maybe too French with Meryl Streep that turned out to be more <laughs> French than you intended. Oof. Oof. That was tough. And Andouillette? Is that what it is? Andouillette. So Andouillette, <clears throat> now, Meryl and I, we went to the Deauville uh, Film Festival, which is like a great festival. And there's great food around there, and it's just fantastic. So then we were heading to Paris to do a press junket in Paris for, for Julie and Julia. And it was the first, like, sort of, real press junket and stuff I'd done since my wife had passed away. But I was like, I was so happy. I was with Meryl and I felt, you know, comfortable with her. And it was just, it was, it was great. So we go to this place. One of the drivers says, we go to the, to Normandy, right? We go to the beaches of Normandy. We get a tour. The guy completely ignores me and everybody else. He just wants to tell Meryl everything. But it was still very exciting. So then we're we're going to stop for lunch um, before we get to Paris because it's like two and a half hour drive, whatever it is. Yeah. So he says, we'll stop at this little place, a beautiful little place, very unpretentious, sat outside. And we ordered the Andouillette because we thought we liked Andouille sausages. So we thought, oh, Andouillette, <laughs> like small, et, small. So it's a small Andouille sausage. And oh yeah, I don't know. Let's get <laughs> so we get it, and they bring it, and I don't know what I can say on your podcast, but I'll say it, and you can yes, cut it out. You can say all the but things. But they brought they brought a thing that looked like a horse cock, <laughs> and put it on our plate. Had it put it brought it to you on a plate, and you're like, and we both looked at it. Carl's <laughs> brother was there too, and we looked at it. And we was like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> It's not what I expected. <laughs> and then we took a, a bite and almost projectile vomited <laughs> because I give, I give the 
the Wikipedia definition in the book of Andouillette, which yes. if, do you have I it? Do. I, I do. Re, re, okay. re, right. re, read it. Read it. Because it's better if it, that is the only way to say it. Um, okay. <laughs> Andouillette is a coarse-grained sausage made of pork and occasionally veal, chitterlings, bracket, intestine, close bracket, yeah. pepper, mm-hmm. wine, onions, and seasoning. Tripe, which is the stomach lining of a cow, is sometimes mm-hmm. an ingredient in the filler of an andouillette, but it is not the casing or the key to its manufacture. True andouillette will be an oblong tube. It will be made with the small intestine. If it is a plump sausage, generally about mm-hmm. 25 millimeters in diameter, mm-hmm. but often mm-hmm. it is much larger, possibly 7 to 10 centimeters in diameter, yeah. and stronger Horse in car. scent yeah. when the colon is used. <laughs> True yeah. <laughs> Andoyette is rarely seen outside France and has a strong distinctive odor related to its intestinal origin, origins and components. <laughs> components is such a horrible word for food. Yeah, components. So, although sometimes repellent to the uninitiated, this aspect of Andoyette is prized by its devotees. And yet yeah. it was not <laughs> treasured, apparently, in the way it was meant to be intended. Oh, my God. It was so horrible. And they're just, I don't even know if they're, like, cooked or, so I don't even, I don't get it. It's so, because sausage is, like, one of the greatest things in the world, but not that. And I had remember, I remembered hearing about it. Once I ate it, then I remembered, oh, it was like, oh, yeah, I saw a show on this one. So I saw, you know, but I didn't get it. Oh, it's a nightmare. We did laugh. I think. <laughs> I think it is. I mean, one of the one of the greatest parts about experiencing you experiencing food is either the <laughs> like you are in a torrid love affair with it. You are going to run mm. away together. Like when you describe cheese, like for example, <laughs> you have this quote that you're like, you're you're talking about cheese, just cheese, just cheese living its life by itself on a plate. It's soft and gentle creaminess. When melted, just wraps itself around the... Okay, off to take a cold shower. (laughs) I love the the pornographic attention (laughs) to to the love of food. Because you decide to either really love it or really hate it or really have a lot of opinions about when you can eat bread. Oh, absolutely. You cannot, you may not, Eat bread with your pasta. So when you're eating a bowl of pasta, if you eat bread with it, it's that's just heresy. Yeah. It's just don't do that. <laughs> it's... But when you finish the bowl of pasta, you take a piece of bread and you use it as a scarpetto, which means a little shoe. Yeah. And with that little shoe, you pick up the rest of the sauce, and that's fine. <laughs> and that's fine. Otherwise, no. Yes, otherwise, no, no. otherwise. No, no. You are dead to me. Whatever we have is lost. Yeah. 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 Even if I didn't know you. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. You have to feel yourself at this moment being cut off from the universe. If you were to transgress some of the laws, there's a lot of rules that you give. I don't often read a list of ingredients that includes the term fuck ton of butter but i did laugh very hard (laughs) on an airplane and feel as a pretty deeply spiritual person that i was not allowed to share that but i uh i think it's just it's so choosy in such a fun way because it's all of 
All these things are available to us to be picky about if it brings us joy. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with being picky. It doesn't mean you're snobby. It just means that you respect quality. <laughs> to me, a snob, a snob is someone who just goes, oh, you know, I only eat at Michelin-starred restaurants. And you're like, what does that mean? Yeah. What does, what does that even mean? I don't eat blah, blah, blah. I, don't, I only drink Chateauneuf du Pop, you know. <laughs> like, well, you're an idiot. I think what I love, too, about it is um, it feels like you being picky is about you wringing the last drops out of a lovely thing. Where you're like, no, 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 let's try the, let's, what if we took our martinis and we just gently stirred them and we lovingly, yeah. we do not shake them. We, right. we choose something. And in the choosing, at least for me, it gives me like a little rush of pride and a little feeling that my, my day just got a little, a little elevated. It makes it your own. You're personalizing it. Yeah. And I think food is a personal thing. I think cocktails are a personal thing. Yeah, you have a recipe. But then, I don't know. I mean, do you like it up or do you like it on the rocks? Yeah. Do you like a little more gin in there? Or do you like a twist? Or do you like a twist and an olive? Yeah. Whatever. Okay, what do you like? And then why do you like that? Yeah. That's also the key thing. Why do you like it? Yeah. Why do you like a twist and an olive together? What is that in your mouth that tells you that that is good? That's that's what's interesting to me. And that's what sort of separates the men from the boys <laughs> is the why. Yeah. You can go, oh, give me this and give me that, give me this. Yeah, but why? Yeah. That's what I want to know. Yeah. I, I, I'm I just thinking of your absolutely adorable viral um, cocktail tutorials during the pandemic <clears> and how fancy it made me feel i'm just thinking of that of why that uh of the why of that because i think at least when your day is stripped down to the studs when you have very few lovely choices being able to sit down and enjoy something and then enjoy enjoying it so like ask yourself the the why of it does this taste clean does it taste fresh does it taste i after chemo, I lost most of my taste buds, and oh wow, yeah. So I yeah. lost a lot of the the pleasure that I could see other people enjoying, and mm -hmm. learning to sit down just to give myself like a a minute to practice enjoying things again was mm. uh, I don't know. It made me feel a little bit more human, even if I I didn't have that many choices to make that day. Do you, have you regained it? A lot of it. And part of it is because yeah. I learned how to describe things. I mean, it kind of feels oh, like shading in a, a drawing. Were I to actually be good at drawing? I, uh, mm -hmm. feels like mm -hmm. I'm kind of learning like, oh, I knew the rough contours of something called sour, but now I can be like, oh, it, what, what are the, yeah. what is the, is it an apple? Is it a, you know, yeah. is it a, I just. So it's, you know, it's almost back or almost completely back or. Yeah, it's slowly coming back. It gets better. Yeah. It gets better the more I practice is how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. No, it's true. It's true. It took me a long time to get it. I know you back. had a long a long arc of that yourself as you had lost the ability to taste with a really harrowing experience, if you don't mind yeah. telling me. 
No, 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 no. It was the high dose radiation. It was a tumor in my throat, so the high dose radiation was the only way to cure it. Luckily, it had not metastasized. I had been misdiagnosed for two years, which was unfortunate. So the tumor was huge. So they couldn't operate on it. Wow. So they just had to do um, high dose radiation and chemotherapy, which increased the efficacy of the radiation. So the but what that does is it destroys your taste buds. It destroys the inside of your mouth and your throat and your um, sal- salivary glands. Yeah. So I still don't have all my saliva back. Um, and, you know, I always have to drink water. I still can't eat uh, things very sort of quickly. You just want to grab a sandwich. Or so that's like not happening. Yeah. You know, that's, that's like a full-time job to eat a sandwich. Um, <laughs> without dipping it in something, you know, I had a croissant this morning after, after a doctor's appointment and, you know, to, I have to get a cup of coffee with it and dip the croissant in it to eat the, the croissant Yeah. As, and then drink water with it and everything like that. Yeah. Yeah. But it's okay because listen, <clears throat> compared to the way I was three years ago after treatment, it's fine. And um, I can smell everything and taste everything again. And the taste is the most important thing for me. It's not so much yeah. being able to finish the thing I'm eating as long as I can taste it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We have a lot of people here in this community for whom food stops being a pleasure and starts being an obstacle because of mm. um, because of surgeries, because of illnesses of various kinds and or sometimes just because they're in a caregiving position and they're they're kind of worn out doing the feeding and the caring for somebody else yeah i um i wondered if there was a like a grief associated with when you were first diagnosed that that all of a sudden like the the joy of food was just gone it was my it was my biggest fear I mean, they assured me that I was going to live and make it through. They couldn't really assure me that I was never going to, that I was going to taste again or that I'd be able to eat properly again. They did their best, but they were like, look, most likely (laughs) you're going to be fine, you know. Uh, most likely isn't always the greatest way to start a sentence. So, so that was hard and it was really scary and I was depressed and I was nervous. I was also, of course, nervous and I still am about, you know, it, and you know, this feeling, it, you know, how long is it, will it come back? Yeah. Is it, you know, all that stuff. And, and, you know, it's all exacerbated and heightened by the fact that my first wife died of cancer. Yeah. So watching her, traveling around the world with her trying to find the cure, whether it was standard of care or alternative was a real education for us both, but ultimately in her case, futile. So that's scary. I didn't want my kids to lose both parents and I wanted to get to know my younger kids. So it was all scary. Still scary. And yes, so grief, yeah. You're grieving for what you might lose and and you're grieving still for the person you lost. 
Sounds like that was a long, a long stretch, like a probably seemed endless season of practicing hopefulness around her cancer and then looking for treatment. And then the the not knowing is, is kind of a different path than the one where there's just kind of a fixed diagnosis. They're not, you know, of course, better or worse, but it's just, I always found that that kind of prolonged uncertainty is makes makes hope a really beautiful and painful thing all the time. It does, and but I, I I found it just so frustrating, yeah, angry, yeah. You know, still angry about it. I can't always let it go. You know, Kate's struggle and her death, and also, you know, what happened to me. I'm like pissed off about it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I am. I'll always be. I'll always be. And that's probably not the greatest place to be in the world, but it's always going to be there. Yeah, there are certain aspects of it that you let go of and you say, it's okay. I'm I'm here. I'm alive. And she was a wonderful person. And, you know, she had such a great impact on people. But, I mean, on the other hand, you're like, well, how come she's not here? How come that guy's still alive? Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Oh, I know exactly. Yes, that <laughs> and, guy. Yeah. Yes. I totally agree. <laughs> a couple of names immediately yeah. come to mind. It's a, it's, yeah, yeah, it's a terrible thing to say. How come that guy's still alive? You know, he's horrible. <laughs> yes. That's a horrible person. Why did she die? Yes. Why did that guy get sick? Yes. Why did, how come he's awful? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why doesn't he get cancer? You know, it's so terrible. It's a terrible thing to say. But you cannot, and no one can deny that they don't think it. <laughs> I I could not agree. No, Stanley, as a very, as a very spiritual person, I, I can't relate to those. I cannot relate to those no, dark no. sentiments. I've never, I've never no, pointed no. at people. I've never pointed no, at no. someone in New York City, no. and, oh, a stranger, and yelled, "You'll be fine." When I was <laughs> feeling indignant, feeling indignant. I, um, yeah. I guess that's what I love about the. I mean, it sounds like you uh, push out into anger. Uh, I kind of collapse inward into um, sadness and shame, which is another great choice. <laughs> if you're interested yeah, sure, in, yeah. in just a variety of, of, of responses, I've tried yeah. shame. Um, but I I have found it hard sometimes to um, to both be honest and then to enjoy the place in which I find myself without quite so many explanations. Like, all right, then, things being as they are, dot, 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 universe, <laughs> comma. Yeah, yeah. What are the, um, what are the non-bright-sided gifts I have today? And uh, I guess that's partly why I feel so grateful when I see people protest the irony of life by really seizing on to fun and lovely things. And you're... Yeah. Homicidal approach to noodles is just I couldn't stop. <laughs> I couldn't not love you for that. Because like, it sounds like um, immediately that what you do is you you grab hold you you grab hold of your people and then you gather them around something. It sounds like you're wonderful at that impulse. You can't just have a pizza. You insist on having a pizza oven and a place where people can have paella outside. You're like, you're like, I'm not just having a dinner. I'm having 200 people over, and then I'm yeah, going to scale yeah. this food. I'm going to make yeah. a lot more of it. 
and I'm going to be picky about it at the same time. Your stubborn gathering impulse seems really wonderful. Yeah, I have that. Felicity has that too. And sometimes we both go, what are we doing? I'm so tired. (laughs) Why are we having another party? (laughs) I can't do it because also we're here in London and now the pandemic is, you know, hopefully on the wane and things are getting back to normal to a certain extent. So you want to have people over. And because you have kids, like you can't go out to dinner every night. You know, you I mean, you'll never see your kids. You're not at home. You're how many babysitters in the world are there? You know, so you're like, hey, you don't want to go to dinner. I want to be home. Yes. So, uh, you know, we, and also in London, you know, London is such a mecca now for the film and television industry that everybody's working here. Mm. So I have friends who are coming over from America and who are just, they're just staying here for like six months working on a project. Yes. So it's always like, well, who's kind of come by? You know who's in town? You know who's in town? All right, come on over. All right, come on over. Come on. Then you're like, after a while, you're like, oh my God, <laughs> I can't. So you run a hostel, a beautiful, yeah. uh, just a, a really upscale hostel. Yeah. You seem to experience love and food and the moment very intensely. And so, so many of your stories are just are are stories about being in love with people and appreciating them and just kind mm. of wrapping it up in a big, long, lingering meal. And uh, you tell this beautiful story of when you had fallen in love and married the beautiful and brilliant and very British Felicity. And you're trying to combine your lives. And she is... Uh, very obligingly and exactingly taking on cooking and traditions of yours. I wondered if you might tell me about her attempts to um, make her own version of roasted potatoes, live her own life. So when she said roast potatoes, I thought she meant roasted potatoes. It's totally different. I thought, being Italian, I thought, oh, well, she's... She's going to, you know, just cut up the potatoes like we do and just, you know, because we had cooked this together. She goes, I'll make some roast potatoes. So you cut them up. You put a little olive oil, garlic, put some onion if you want, you know, rosemary, thyme, whatever, and roast them in the oven. There you go. So she starts cooking one night and she takes these potatoes. She peels them and, and boils them. Like big, quite big potatoes. And I was like, what are you doing? I like how concerned you look right now. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're like, look, I've got this terrible thing to tell you about what she did. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's boiling the things. And I was like, what are you doing? I thought you were making roast roast potatoes. She goes, yeah, I am. I go, all right. I mean, I never, I don't know. I thought boiling was different than roasting, but (laughs) silly me. So then she takes like a layer of a layer, I don't know, like a whole bunch of goose fat or vegetable oil, I can't remember. And she lines a a baking tray with it so that it's quite, you know, a substantial amount in there. And she has it under the, the grill. Yeah. Right? So then she takes out the potatoes, she drains them, she keeps it, puts them back into the pot, and she shakes the pot with the top on, so they fluff up. They get like a, a sort of uh, 
cragginess on the outside of them, but it's fluffy, <laughs> right? And then she takes those potatoes and places them into the boiling oil, boiling <laughs> oil, smoking hot oil, yeah. smoking hot, so that the kitchen's filled with smoke. She does that and then puts them back under in the oven. Yeah. And the places filled with smoke, we're panicked. <laughs> you know, we think, I go, what are you doing? <laughs> She goes, I'm making roast potatoes. That's the way we make them. And then they come out and they are the most incredible thing in the world <laughs> because the outside is all crispy, crunchy. Yeah. And the inside, so the outside's like a French fry. Yeah. And the inside is like a mashed potato. <laughs> that does sound. And that's a classic English yeah. dish that you serve with a Sunday roast. Nice. Amazing. You know, this beautiful thing you said, if you don't mind me saying you, but in a less resonant right. voice, you said, food at once grounded me and took me to other places. It comforted me and challenged me. It was part of the fabric that made up my creative self and my domestic self. It allowed me to express my love for the people I love and make connections with new people I might come to love. When I see you, I see a man deeply in love with the world and with its deliciousness. And I am so grateful that you shared that with me today. Thank you so much for doing this. <laughs> oh, okay. It's been my pleasure. I can't thank you enough for all the nice things you said and, and for giving me the time to talk. The trick to losing is to do it all at once. I had a dear friend offer some gentle advice after my initial diagnosis. He told me that for people who hike the Appalachian Trail, the first trailhead is the most important. Eager beginners start their trek with heavy packs brimming with tarps and tents, cooking utensils and flasks and granola bars. But the hiker is already starting to flag and they have only just begun. They have reached a moment of decision, the moment to ask, what can I set down? This will be a hard journey, my therapist said, looking at me a little sternly. Is there anything you could set down? Setting down, as it turns out, is difficult. That is until, of course, I had to rebuild, take things on again, Pick things back up. This conversation with Stanley Tucci reminded me that it is okay to delight in life again, to be picky and have favorite flavors, to want dinner made and consumed in the correct order. So here's a blessing for all of us, learning to delight again, to pick up our joys again once more. Blessed are you, the pragmatic, who have run the math and know what adds up and what doesn't. You have set it all down. You who don't hope or dream or plan anymore because what's the point? But blessed are you learning to live here. Your world has shrunk. Pain or grief or fear has sucked up every bit of oxygen from the room and every ounce of delight has been squeezed from your hands. But blessed are we who discover that 
even in the smallness. Our attention might be compressed even more. We who pull out a magnifying glass to discover, to notice, to taste, to smell the small joys and simple pleasures that make a life worth living. You who wear the fancy blouse because it makes you feel nice, long after you thought your body wasn't worth decorating. You who eat the -the over-the-top meal because that is what today can afford. You who make the memory and plan the trip, who snap a picture because we know that this one wild and precious life might cost us everything. So why not make it not just bearable, but beautiful? work on the Everything Happens podcast and with the Everything Happens initiative is made possible because of our partners and generous donors, Lilly Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. And a huge thank you to my team who makes this work not only possible, but fun. Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Keith Weston, Gwen Hagenbotham, Katie Mangum, AJ Walton, Catherine Smith, Mary Jo Clancy, JJ Dickinson, and Jeb and Sammy. And if you'd like to be a human with me, come find me online at Kate C. Bowler. I also have a weekly email that might be the right dose of love and courage you need. Sign up at katebowler.com newsletter. This is Everything Happens With Me, Kate Bowler.